That was a wonderful Christmas because we gave her the family Lego. Because growing up, I don't know if it started with, which child did it start with? With Tony. With Tony. Oh yeah. So Tony had Lego. Passed. Yeah. And then I was it was you passed on to me and I had so it was a drawer full of Lego. I was on and a then bunk. We passed bed. it on. Who do we pass it on? When I started getting the Lego, it was around the time when Lego started to become a little bit more toy like. Yes, so like the, with Tony there was more technic Lego and lots of like different designs. But yes. by me it was like there was pirates. That's and right. there was they were actual, uh, Robin, more Robin Hood. Already formulated, yeah, right? Robin Hood pirates. Yeah. It was around that, that yeah. stage. Um, but by the time it got to Brie, I'd passed on that Lego to Rebecca That's right. and her Rebecca. children, so my niece and, niece and my nephew in Germany. Yeah. They had added to it with a lot of kind of their That's new right. new Lego, which yeah. included Harry and Potter Lego and stuff to... like that. They took some of their stuff out of it yeah. and kept that. So I think a lot of the Harry Potter stuff was kept. But some of that stuff came and it all came together. To, to Brie at that Christmas yes. when we happened to be in a house that had a, quite a big front room where we could all hang out yes. and so we just built right. a Lego world for the whole of Christmas like the yes. whole of that room was basically yeah. Lego by the end like yeah. complicated buildings and people and spaceships and, and all of that stuff so that was great Episode 18, Legacy. In addition to the things that are mentioned in the general content note for this show, this episode will touch on sex, assisted dying and war. And it contains spoilers for the podcast drama series, The Family Tree. I mean, I'm working out how to get into this topic. Yeah. And, you know, you've said that you're cool, cool with talking about this topic before, but if you're not, then... You know, no, you... I didn't say I was cool about talking about talking. Well, you said that you would negotiate it. Yeah, well, I don't see how I can. Not now, not now. Well, like, now you can, I can cut out if you if we talk about... Uh... Well, no, now, now you've introduced names. Well, I can cut out names. Yeah, not all. ウェブディスクリスアザサイデウェルノンフィガーズ。いや、ですね。いや、ですね。いや、ですね。いや、ですね。いや、ですね。いや、ですね。いや、ですね。いや、ですね。いや、ですね。いや、ですね。いや、
uh, over the last couple of years, really. Like, I've, you've been telling me about your relationship history for a couple of years. I never thought we'd put it down on mic, but the other day you said, yeah, let's do it. They're all dead and it doesn't matter. I've been planning this show for years. The earliest recording I've used was recorded by my dad on cassette tape in 1984. This show has covered 96 years of my dad's life and 38 years of mine. I started recording interviews with my dad in 2011 and began writing essays about our relationship and his journey through old age towards death in 2017. But at the same time, this show has been thrown together really quickly at a much faster pace than I'd anticipated. And its release schedule was not something that I had control over. At the end of 2019, I discovered I'd received the Pulse Award from the British Podcast Awards and the Wellcome Trust. The pitch that I'd sent when I applied for the award described a show that didn't exist yet. And getting the award meant that I had to make that show in the space of a few months, whilst also recording and editing a completely new part of the show, which incorporated science communication into the deeply personal material. And the day that I recorded the last of my in-person interviews was the day that the UK officially acknowledged the pandemic which was spreading across the globe. And the show launched the day after the lockdown was announced. And a lot of the work and promotion that I've been doing has been happening in a very unexpected context. But then, I guess, unexpected contexts happen all the time. You had two inspirational teachers Mm -hmm. when you were at school. Yes, I did. Who were they? I mean, they're publicly known now as sort of war heroes because they were both in SOE. Francis Kamitz and Harry Ray. And extraordinary that they both came to the school in sort of 1939, no, 1940, after the war had started. They came down from Cambridge. They came to my grammar school in South London, which wasn't a sort of posh grammar school. It was just a standard grammar school. Beckenham and Penge Grammar School for Boys, it was called. They came there in 1940 together. They were both French-speaking. I mean, Francis, he was the son of Emile Camus, who was a well-known Belgian poet. And then when the war started, they were both conscientious objectors. But Harry rapidly decided that this was a war that had to be fought against fascism and all that. He knew it anyway. He joined the army. And I, I was then in the sixth form, not because I was going on to anything because I'd failed my general school certificate. In those days you had to pass in every subject to get past the exam. I got a distinction in English and a credit in history and failed in pretty well everything else. So when Harry and Francis came into your life, you were, what, 16, 15? I think I was 15 or 16. And they were conscientious objectors, so I guess that was already something quite wild and different. If you were a conscientious objector, you were directed to war work and in fact Francis became a conscientious objector and had to leave the school and go and work on a farm because if you were a conscientious objector you were directed to non-military war work. Yeah sure. So that's what happened to him and then Harry who was in the SOE by then convinced him to join. To join. And the SOE is the secret secret service. Special operations executive. And they were undercover agents in France. Well SOE was the main overall organisation. They had 
you know, SOE in different countries. They had agents in different countries. And they went to France because they were French speakers. Yeah, they were French speakers. And so they were doing a very, very brave and uh, sort of glamorous compared to yeah. other frontline warfare because, I mean, yes, they're in danger, but they're also living a, a more kind of exciting life than, say, if you're on the front line. But very but dangerous, still dangerous. I mean, if you did yeah, yeah, get sure. caught, it was a Gestapo. And they, I guess you became friends with them as well as they were your teachers, would you uh, say? Yeah, I mean, it was that sort of thing. I, 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 Harry was my teacher. Actually, Francis never taught me, but Harry was my teacher. And he was, I, I was very friendly with him. You know, he was very supportive of my writing and that sort of thing. And his wife came to the school when he did and took over the school dinners, which were pretty abominable before that. Watery rice pudding and badly cooked cabbage. And, that. and Hetty came and, and sort of turned it all around and introduced macaroni cheese into the, the school dinner menu. That's when I became an aficionado macaroni cheese which fed into the next generation because you always used to make macaroni cheese for us in some ways i think of down to a sunless sea as a way of providing my dad with a legacy that will last after he is gone his life his experiences his work his love will now last for longer his influence on the world extended and amplified for nearly all of his life he wrote words, and he wanted those words to reach more people. He occasionally had moments where something he wrote was published, but mostly his writing reached other people through being self-published. He has written a lot of books, but very few people have read them. I've read some of them. My own view is that as a writer, he never really considered his audience. His work is full of really excellent pieces of writing, but they are trapped within convoluted and confusingly experimental surroundings. Since I've been able to articulate what I think doesn't work about my dad's prose, I have tried to communicate these issues to my dad. Once, because I'd given him notes, he persuaded me to take two of his books and try to combine them into one more accessible book. I spent a lot of time trying to make that book work, but ultimately the task of making his science fiction literary erotica with questionable gender politics into something that would appeal to wider readers was a job beyond my skill. The major preoccupation of your writing is sexuality, is it not? Probably, yes, I suppose it is. You, yeah. You've written yes. a triple volume work well, of erotic <laughs> science fiction. Yeah, well, that's... There's usually neurotic. There's usually... Always. It's usually about men and women. Yeah. Yeah. The like, only one that isn't... Well, no, even that is, really. It's um, Solomon Tomorrow, because that's science fiction and sort of funny, you know, comic science fiction. But thinking about it, there's still the element there, strange, within well, that. But, but that's what that, we do, no? It's still a sexual... Well, everyone is working out. Like, writers or, or artists are working out their own kinks through their writing. And people <laughs> in general are doing that through their conversation, through their lives, through mm. how they express themselves. Yeah. And and so, like, that's what writers do. And loads of writing is... A, loads of writers are obsessed with sex. I have to say that I definitely write a lot about sex, that mm -hmm. a lot of my work is about mm -hmm. sex. I don't think to the same level that yours is... There's other things that I'm very, very, very preoccupied by that are very not about sex. And there are for you as well, actually. Um, yeah, but, yeah, I know what you mean. But it's I think major. It is very major. But I think, you know, 
I mean, certainly the form, you know, what's encapsulated in it, maybe other than sex. It's usually encapsulated in sex-related form. My dad carried on writing until he couldn't write any more. At the very end, he was no longer concerned with publication. It was just a way to have something to live for. But I think in some ways it was still about leaving something behind. He used to tell me that when he died, he wanted me and my brother to be in charge of his writing. He always implied that we might try to get it published posthumously. This is an extract from a memoir that he wrote in 2011. 1925 to 1927. Memories. Pushchair turning from the door. Mother and another woman. Past open-fronted greengrocer. Oranges at eye level, large and bright, to right side of pushchair. Old Mrs. Waggett, blind, in rocking chair. Fear. Playing on the floor beside her. Arrival of large teddy bear. Big Ted. Initially frightened by growl. Subsequently, when? Joined by little Ted. Hand-sized. I guess I used to think about my own legacy a lot. I've definitely written novels that have not been published and made albums that I hoped would appeal to the masses. I've worried about making it at a young enough age to be a pop star. I've ignored critiques that would have made my work better. And I have, eventually, tried to listen to those critiques and make my work better. I don't really care much about my legacy now, given the state of the world in terms of the climate crisis and its political configurations. It often seems unrealistic to think about legacy. Who knows what will happen to the statues that we erect today? Will they be at the bottom of the sea in 50 years' time? We used to say, be careful what you put online because the internet lasts forever, but I can see everything being lost. The internet only lasts as long as the servers it inhabits remain. The reason I think it's important to tell your story, I mean, there's a selfish reason, like I said to you before, when I'm your age, assuming everything hasn't gone to shit, which it probably has, but anyway, when I'm your age, I'll have this recording to listen back to. Yeah, And it'll be, well, (laughs) for me, from a personal level, it'll be fascinating, you know, to hear after, when when I'm 89 (laughs) and I've, like, had my life, and I'd have to look back at my life and think, yeah. did I make the right decisions here and there and <laughs> right. whatever. Yes. Okay. But, 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 but from a more public level, I think this conversation 
it's important to talk about this side of things. And when people see an 89-year-old man, they don't think that's a man that might have had an open relationship or might be a bit kinky. And they don't think like... Um, yeah, but that's good. They should know that. They should know that, shouldn't they? Oh, my God. <laughs> it's getting better acquainted. Yeah. Well, we are, yeah. Well, that's why that, that's the whole purpose of this bloody show is to get know, better acquainted yeah. with people. Yeah, yeah, and it's hard to get better acquainted with you. We have to keep going to new levels. It's a bit like <laughs> Jen. Why you keep recording these conversations with me? You know <laughs> that if you know that they're valuable, you just don't like the fact that it's you that they're <laughs> documenting. But you agree mm. with the principle of what I'm saying, don't you? That it's good for people to know that there's more yeah, variety yeah. and. Yeah. People that and these areas are interesting. Well, this is the whole point of, the, of your show. Isn't it? I don't really care much about my legacy now. I'm too old to be a pop star, or at least the type of pop star that I imagined being when I was a teenager. I don't really care much about my legacy now. To some degree, I have achieved recognition. I have made work that has reached people. If someone wrote a history of UK podcasting or of the London art scene, I would probably at least be a footnote. I don't really care much about my legacy now. As I've worked through the legacy of trauma that I have from my childhood, my values and desires have changed. I'm more interested in living life now than focusing on a future that may never deliver. But, of course, all of that is only half true. I do still want my words to reach other people and to potentially last after I have gone. And while I don't think that my dad's writing could or should ever be published in the kinds of ways that he hoped, I do want his words to last. I did actually have, a, 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 I wouldn't call it an affair because it was simply, simply um, charity and, you know, loving charity on her side. Um, but I did have my first experience of sex with the wife of one of these. I mean, it wasn't something that anybody minded. The wife of one of these men, because yeah, he was in the that. war yeah. and she was at home, and so they had an agreement that she could take lovers and also in terms of you you were a 17 year old yes i mean i wasn't exactly a lover. i mean shit was at night it was it a was, very nice act of an older was... woman a fond old woman and i was going overseas i mean not that in fact that turned out to be anything well, but you know in a sense it was your first right. sexual experience was in an open context mm-hmm. and that made you embrace the idea of open relationships francis talked about that and they talked about that i mean I think even before that, you know, I wasn't thinking of that. It was just, I mean, it was offered to me that that was, you know... But that's the other thing, though. You were a 17-year-old boy going off to war. This was Mm. wartime. And, I mean, actually, in the conversation I had with your Mm ex-wife, she talks about the wartime being a time when sex, like, rules about sex and that sort of thing could be brushed to the side because there was much more danger. You can have an orgasm today or you can die tomorrow and never have had an orgasm. You know, it's it's a different kind of thing for a young person. Exactly. For a young person in 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 the war, it's a very differently charged uh experience and so 
she had sex with you before you went away to war. Whilst you were over here, over in France, what were uh, Harry and Francis doing in France? Oh, you mean when they went? Yeah. Well, I didn't know. I yeah. know now. I mean, it's all it's history. It wasn't the sort of thing that went in the newspapers. People didn't even know they were there. First of all, they had to engage with the, with the French resistance. They would liaise with and support the French resistance. So they'd organise all them arms drops to the French resistance and they'd fly these arms over at night in a bomber, you know, in a mosquito or something and drop them. They would become involved with the local resistance and organise sabotage and that sort of thing. And Francis, who was in the south of France, ended up in the Vercors, which is a big sort of area in the south of France where there was a French resistance sort of army. And he'd previously been organising cells. When they came in from the south, when there was that final south, southern invasion of France, this secret army sort of actually attacked the Germans, and he was involved in all that. Wasn't he? Was he imprisoned? And then he was imprisoned, yeah, and he was got out of prison by somebody going in and saying that, I thought either that he was or they were related to Churchill, by a, a, a woman agent telling... Because the Gestapo were a bit scared by then because the war was obviously over and they were going to lose. So, you know, so I presume that that may have helped him. him in, but she she said to them, you know, if they didn't let... He was Winston Churchill's grandson or something. That One of those yeah. kind of stories to make them let him go. And, and she was did. a famous agent as well, wasn't she? Yeah. Uh, and, mm. and, and they had an affair, which is documented. It's documented in books that you've read, so you don't need to worry. You're not outing them. No, all right. But they had an affair over there. So, I mean, mm. like, both of the teachers were over in France living their Harry lives. Harry wasn't like that. Harry was very different. No, no, sure, Harry mm. was different, I'm sure. But they were living their lives over there and you guys were living your lives mm. over here. I think it's one of the reasons I wanted to, to have this conversation. I think it's a brilliant story. I mean, I think it's a brilliant film, you know, like a 17-year-old boy. I want to, I want to. Well, finance it. Anybody listening, finance it people listening get a campaign going whatever you like I don't care but I'd love to do this film yeah <laughs> um, but I don't have a way of doing it <laughs> but yeah no I mean but it is a story it's like two young teachers conscientious objectors they change their mind and become secret agents whilst their student um, has a coming of age kind of story and then they go off and then you went off to war as well, and then you've got all. Well, that's a then you've got story. three different. Yeah, but that's great, isn't it? You get to you get to have a contrast between secret agent story and your war story, which, if people listen back to it, was a very happy, lucky war where you didn't have any combat. So that's actually an interesting juxtaposition for a film. And then it all ends at the end of the war when you came back and you met your first <coughs> wife, mm-hmm. and then yeah. Sheila. And and what happened there? Well, Francis gave me away. And I was, um, and then as I say, we lived with them for about three months. That's right. So it all comes together at this kind of this epilogue. <laughs> when I played early drafts of this series to my partner, she said, "It's nice to hear him like that again. It's better than a photo." I know he wouldn't understand it now, but I feel like he'd like it. Spending intensive time working on this show was an emotionally complex experience. When I first went through all the interviews, I listened to them in chronological order. This meant that I was journeying through time, my dad becoming less and less himself, as I slowly became more myself. As the interviews went on, I made myself cringe less, but it became harder and sadder to listen to my dad. There's a sweet spot in getting better acquainted 155 
where I'm less of a dick and he's still mostly himself. In that episode, he is 90. In that conversation, I call him lucky because he still had a high quality of life. By his next appearance in Getting Better Acquainted 278, he is 92 and has a diagnosis of mild dementia. I no longer call him lucky. The process of making this show may have been hard at times, but it's given me many things. It reminded me of all the things that I did for him. It has reminded me of all of the things that I'd forgotten and the incorrect or questionable memories that I still hadn't overwritten, the corrections that had uncorrected themselves. I've got to spend lots of time with an old friend, although that has been strange because I rarely see him now in person. And when I do, he is not any of the people he has been in the majority of this show. I used to live round the corner from my dad, but now I live on the opposite side of the country. Almost as soon as I'd moved to Lancashire from London, my dad moved to assisted accommodation in rural Yorkshire. The transport links between our two locations are expensive and unreliable, but part of the reason I moved was that I needed to see him less. So maybe that's a good thing. He was moved more quickly than I'd expected. I'd intended to visit him one last time in London, but instead I ended up going back to his empty flat to go through his things and take some keepsakes to remember him by. His walking stick, a photo of him, gadgets and bits and bobs from my childhood. It seems to me that there's lots of branches of your family and my family, by extension, that you don't have any contact with. And so they're kind of lost branches of our family tree. Well, yes. I mean, where do you mean? I mean, certainly my... I mean, after my father died and I came back after the war, his his family didn't keep in touch with me. And I, I didn't make an attempt to keep in touch with them for some strange reason. I just accepted, somehow I accepted when I came back that family's not there, there's not a family. And then the same thing applied to my mother's family, but in a totally different way because, I mean, she didn't die, she was alive. But but I remember after we moved to West Wickham, we did go back for a few years to my grandparents in Bristol for Christmas, but but that's all sort of stopped. And by the time I came back from the war, there was no relationship left. Mother, the two, my two, the two grandparents had died, of course. Right. One, yes, one, one of them died actually when I, the year after I came back from the war. That's right, she did. But I, but so I had no, I had no real running contact with these families, to hand on in a sense. You know, I mean, if I did, some of them would be, um, well, not exactly great uncles to you, but they have, you know, well, they, they. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, I mean. It seems to me that you've you, you what what it is is your cousins uh, would have had some kind of relationship to me. I don't know how that works. I did have cousins. Exactly, and and so like so you were an only child, but yeah. but neither of your parents were only children. Is that right? Yes, it is. Yeah, my mother had five 
my, my mother had five brothers. Right. Uh, That's a lot of family. Uh, and my, my father had two sisters. Even before I started listening to all this audio, I would often hear his voice in my head. I am already grieving him, even though his body is still alive. But during the editing of this show, he has been a series of ghosts lovingly haunting me. It was strange in January to write a birthday card to the person he is now, who often doesn't remember me. Having moments before been listening to him when he was 89 and full of himself. And in fact, I didn't really register that birthday properly in my mind and would go on to say he was 95 in every interview that I did, even though he turned 96 before I'd even started approaching guests. When you edit audio, you have to loop things all the time. No, I think I wish I had learned things. There's so much cutting, tightening, re-listening, filtering. Having his voice going round and round, saying emotionally complicated things, reminded me of the painful, circular conversations we would have in our last few years in London. I am continually thinking about myself. This is one of the factors of dementia. Listening to us both made me pick up on the ways in which I speak like him. I've started playing up to some of those things, partly accidentally but partly to bring him back. Often when my partner asks me a question, I will respond with the lightly belligerent yeah that he used to give. Yeah. 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 As I listened back to past versions of me, I tried to temper my irritation and disagreement with compassion. Between 2011 and now, I was changing a lot, to the point where you could say I am listening back to past genders of me as I now see myself as genderqueer. I hadn't even come across that term in 2011. Yeah, yeah. It's sad to realise that whilst my dad knew those past me's very well, he is not able to really know the current me not from within the current version of himself. He will never know the me I am today, and he definitely won't know any of the future people that I become. As I have put this show together, I have also been aware of the alternative shows that could have existed. The parallel story of my brother's relationship with my dad, my sister's relationships with my dad, the stories and the sides of my dad that I will never hear. Whilst my dad will leave his words and his love to his children, he won't be leaving much else in material terms. He gave his first wife the house that he'd inherited from his mother. That legacy may pass on to some of his children, but not to me. And in terms of his children, I am probably the one with the least resources. That was part of the reason that I moved to London to be close to him. I couldn't support him financially, so I wanted to provide him with practical support. As I've put this show together, I've often been reminded 
of what having financial constraints means in relation to being able to care for your loved ones. Researching the show and conducting the interviews with guests, I've come across lots of options that I'd have liked to have given my dad. But since I'm the child who has the least financial ability to contribute, and I'm not one of the children currently seeing him frequently, I don't really feel that I can even suggest these things, let alone make them happen. The assisted living facility was, in the end, a decision that I didn't have much influence over. And the reality is that my dad's end of life isn't purely about him, just as funerals are in many ways for the living. Some aspects of his end-of-life care are partially about the needs of his children, and they need to fit within and be balanced with our own lives and our means. Some of us need ways to feel like we are supporting him and ways for us to say goodbye. At this point, I don't feel like regular contact with me helps to improve his quality of life. And it certainly doesn't help my mental health. But making this show is something that I can do. I can look after his legacy. I haven't been able to give him the death that he has repeatedly asked for. But I have been able to make a show which has reported those wishes. And in the Magical Realist podcast drama series, The Family Tree, my partner slash co-producer and I collaborated with my dad to dramatise his ideal death. His character changes into a tree in the place that he wished his life would end. I could imagine myself as a tree in the woods of wonderful Willowbridge. And Willowbridge is in Yorkshire. It's in the North Yorkshire. It's beautifully in the country. Adjacent to the house is this woods through which there's a, a footpath which I walk regularly when I'm up there, which takes you around, right round the woods and back to the house. And in those woods, I could be a tree there. A tree has a different context of life and a different projection of life. In some ways, the memory of you at least will live on. I'll be gone when the people I know have died, but you'll still be there inside an oak tree. Yes, I wonder whether it will carry dementia with me to into the consciousness of a changeling. Does the consciousness of a changeling clarify? You know, does it clear up what is being changed? If that is all confused, does it clear up into what it changes into? not being confused. Will the echo of your dementia live on in that oak tree? What is dementia to an oak tree? What is a what is a tree's version of oak? I mean, there's so many questions. You seem pretty blasé about the fact that there's your dead body and that you've changed, that this is all work, that this has all happened. I mean, it, it doesn't seem to be particularly shocking to you. I guess we planned this, we expected it, but... Why should it be? It is something I have been expecting... It's been planned and arranged, and now it has happened. And remember that I started off in a demented state, and I moved away from that into this state, which I have yet to find out and discover. I don't think dementia seems to be carried over 
into every aspect of a changeling's lives. I guess you'll be the family tree, right? You'll be the tree that the family goes to to get close to you, who's dead. I mean, the... Willowbridge, yes, indeed. When my dad had his heart bypass, I stayed nearby. I couldn't imagine being far away from him when he might die. Now, I am far away from him. And he could die any day. And yet, I don't have a desire to be near him. I do visit from time to time, partly to make my family feel better about things, and partly because I want to know how he is and who he is now. On the rare occasions I visited him, he still run through his circular conversations about wanting to die. Although, who knows if that will be the case the next time that I see him. At this point, I would like him to get to a place where he forgets to have those conversations because they don't make either of us happy. And yet, when those circles stop happening, he will be even less himself. When my mum tells me that I should visit my dad more, she says that if I don't, I will regret it when he is gone. I don't think she's right. I would much rather remember younger versions of him than have this last version overwrite those memories. When my older sister tells me I should visit my dad more, she says that she feels he misses me and that he will be happier if he sees me more frequently. And people have reported back to me that he asks how I am and where I am sometimes. But when I last saw him in person, he didn't remember who I was initially. And after he remembered, he forgot a few more times. I think he does remember me on a level beyond memory. But I'm not convinced that that necessarily makes my visits any kind of comfort to him. He remembers me enough to find his way back into circular conversations about wanting to die. Unlike other people who know and love him, I can't bring myself to change the subject. Ignoring his testimony is not something that I can do, although in some ways I wish that it was. But I can edit audio. I can write. I can make podcasts. I have got a large archive of interviews with my dad. If I am no longer good at helping him in person, I can help in other ways. Or at least it's good for me to convince myself that I can still do things for him and with him. It makes me feel less helpless. As my partner says, because my dad is featured so strongly in this show, it feels like he is a co-author, a collaborator. And if I can't ignore his testimony, then I can at least amplify it. A question I've often asked myself when putting this series together is, will I have anything left to say about him at his funeral? If this show is a document, it's also a memorial, an audio gravestone for someone who is still alive, an epitaph, a eulogy. I'm really glad that I made this show, that it hasn't just remained an imagined show.
It's been a tough journey at times, but one that I'm so grateful to have made. Thank you for travelling on it with me. There may be a second series. There may not be. We'll see. I have ideas and recordings, but whatever happens, I definitely want to take a break from this kind of material for a while. I'm going to end the first season of Down to a Sunless Sea, Memories of My Dad, with my dad, telling a long story. It might seem a strange or even irrelevant way to end the series, but as well as this story saying, in my opinion, lots of things about my dad and the idea of legacy, it also seems that the most appropriate way to end this show is with my dad sharing his memories. It's taken from a conversation that I recorded at a time when he would have described himself as living in life one. It was recorded before his stroke and his dementia, when he was in his 80s, before I'd even had the idea of making Getting Better Acquainted. Back then, this was the story from my dad's life that I was interested in documenting. I was thinking about adapting it into a screenplay, an art house comedy road trip. This story is from a very specific moment in my dad's life, the year that he left his first wife for the woman who would become my mum. And one last thing, the Francis that my dad is talking about is a different Francis to the one he was talking about earlier in the episode 1969 it was uh, yeah because it was i mean it was a very eventful year because in fact when i went on the wreck it i was married to sheena and when i went on to shoot it i was with june (laughs) (laughs) so it was very so there was a very lot of personal stuff going on in my mind throughout that whole period it must have started sort of beginning of 69 the francis came along and said want to make this film you know, going to make this film in America. So these three mining manufacturers were interested in making a film showing how their machinery was being used in America. Now, how how it came about, whether the companies came to the coal board, I mean, I think it was probably done on the basis of people talking to one another, you know, mining engineers and the, the production, head of production at the National Coal Board would have known the manager. The, people and probably it could well have come out over a dinner or something but the coal board film in it was was engaged to do it i don't actually see that the coal board had a great interest in it because it wouldn't worry them i mean it wasn't they weren't selling equipment so i don't i really don't know exactly how it all started anyway francis comes along and says that they're going to do this and francis is very friendly with somebody in in the production department somebody high up in the production department at the coal board who'd put it to him and the Cobalt film in it were going to do it, but some of the money was going to be put up by these each of these three companies, which was unusual. I mean, n- normally Cobalt films were made by the Cobalt for the Cobalt and paid for by the Cobalt. Did, did that mean you had a, a, a much larger budget than you had normally got? Or? Well, yeah, in the sense that, I mean, the Cobalt wouldn't have had, 
I mean, it was obviously expensive to make a film over there in the States. By the Cobble Film Minister standards, it was a sort of big film. Why, why did you get chosen to do the big film? Um, I was sort of fairly senior in Francis' eyes. I mean, he, he thought I was quite good. I mean, I'd known Francis since 1941. He was with Rotha Films, who I was with before I went in the army. I wasn't all that keen on it, actually, because I thought it was a crazy idea. I just thought, you know, I can't imagine how, how we're going to do this, this unit. Because I didn't have a great deal of faith. It was very much sort of, yeah, yeah well, it won't be a problem, you know. And you'd think, well, yeah, but there are going to be problems. I mean, this is the sort of thing one was used to at home, but you could deal with it at home. You wouldn't take necessarily face value. The simplicity with which he thought something would be done. It wasn't really a question of very much of making a script because what happened was there were there was sort of there were only a limited number of installations over there and they simply said this particular pit has this installation. So that was so we had a sort of list of pits at that point. Two in Illinois and one in Utah. So we had three locations where we were going to make the film and the film was going to be made about the equipment that was there. Suggestion then was that Francis and I would go out there and look at these pits and come back with a sort of plan of what we were going to do. But right from the beginning I kept saying, well, yeah, but it's no good just sending me over to make the film. You have to send a mining engineer over with me. I mean, you, you're wanting me to come back with some kind of technical analysis and I don't have the wherewithal to, I don't, you know, to interview the managers, to ask the managers the right questions. Oh, no, you'll be able to do it, Purse, no problem. Purse, he called me. He had a nicknames for everybody. Robert was Squarehead because he was German. Peter Whale was Moby because Whale. Ken Reeves was Tiger. I can't remember why that was. Why were you Purse? Purse, I don't know, because he couldn't think of anything else. He's short for Percy. Percy, yeah. Purse. So he was, you could say he was in a sort of high middle management. Well, no, he was a departmental manager. Right. He invented n- nicknames almost immediately. I wasn't all that keen on doing it at that point after that because I sort of thought, well, this is ridiculous. I'm going to be left with a really sort of strange situation without any guidance and with the assumption that there's no problem and I should sort it out. I mean, if people had thought, yeah, there's a problem, you're going to sort it out. But with this sort of idea is that you think, well, I can see this is enormously difficult and it's being dismissed as terribly easy. You know, that is a very is a big pitfall there. I sort of vaguely said to him, from time to time, at lunchtime when we were drinking our tea, he says, what, what's going to happen? Oh, yeah, you know, I've written to various people and that sort of thing. We go over there. And so we duly flew out without me knowing very much, except that we were going out for two reasons. We were going to look at the locations and we were going to try to find American cameramen and an American crew. So we fly out and we land in New York. So then we went to see Carl Marl Kames. Now, Carl Marl Kames was the was a cameraman. He was maybe, he was probably in his 40s, something like that, 50s. He was not just a cameraman, he had a sort of unit and he could supply a lot. Now, that was the deal. You know, he would supply a production manager and sound recordist, his own assistant, all the camera equipment, uh, transport to station wagons. They would do the whole organisational thing. So all I'd have to do is sort of direct. Francis likes driving, so we hire a car in New York. Francis does all the driving. He doesn't want... He's quite, he loves driving. Every time we pull in at a 
place. I go and get him a cold ice coke, and he likes this. I will fly on to Denver, where I will pick up a car, and then I will drive across the Rockies into Utah to the third mine, right, that we're going to see on my own. On your own? Yeah. Well, that's the best part of the whole trip. That's the best part of the whole American thing, because I, I think I got to Denver and I got this Mustang... But I must say I was completely thrown initially by the fact that I'd never driven in a big American car because Francis had done all the driving. I came out of the plane and walked out to where the car, where you picked up the hire cars. There was a hire car waiting with the door open and the engine running. You know, I was thinking on the plane, I thought, well, when I get there, I'll sort of get in the car and just sort of take it around the corner, yeah. suss it out, work it out. But as I say, the car was there. <laughs> There's a guy holding the door and the engine's running and it's night. It's night time. It's sort of like motorways. I've never driven on the right. And the right-hand drive and tr- streams of traffic out of the airport in the dark. And I had a vague idea of where it was meant to go. I wanted to get into the centre of Denver when in actual fact I got mixed up with the motorways and I was like about 20 miles outside Denver and I couldn't stop. You know, I was kept on. I couldn't. I had to go far enough that I could actually that the traffic thinned out enough that I could stop. So I stopped, I found a bar or something and stopped there. I find the way down to sort of central Denver to where this place is. Knock on the door. Now that appointment has been made. They are expecting me. I go up to see this guy. We, we have the small talk. And then he sort of sits back in his chair. So the initiative is with me. So I said, I said, uh, how, what, but you, you do realise I'm not an engineer. And he sort of looked, Somewhat perplexed, <laughs> and we sort of, he was a nice guy actually. We, we we rapidly got to the point where I sort of said, "Well, really, I don't quite know what I'm doing here, and uh, you know, I don't. I really feel I ought to apologise for the visit because I." And he said, "Well, we could drink some whiskey, and we sort of we had quite a good talk about other things." So after that, I had this great drive across the Rockies. In a Mustang. Yeah, that was really great. That was really great. I stopped at Colorado Springs and it was 1969. So the Beatles were still sort of big in America, you know. Because I remember I sort of went out, I stopped at a motel in Colorado Springs and went into the town and I found a night, I was in a sort of nightclub in a bar and everybody was terribly keen on the Beatles. I was, it was still in those days, actually. It was, I mean, the, the barmaid sort of said to me, you sound like Cary Grant. <laughs> and, you know, it was that kind of situation. Yeah. And the Beatles were sort of, you know, so I, was quite, I had quite a good evening. And then I drove down, I mean, I drove down to Salt Lake City and then prices just beyond Salt Lake City. I think, or just this one one side or the other, because I, when I flew back, I had to go to Salt Lake City. Anyway, that's where I that's where I was when the moon landing took place. That was the night before I was due to go to this third mine. So the next day, I'd get out, get the car out, drive up to Sunnyside, the Sunnyside mine, it was called, and I drive in the gates of this sort of you know industrial sort of typical mining sort of area, um, but up in the hills. And it's all a bit sort of quiet. <laughs> but I drive up to the to the main offices and sort of get out, and, and they're all sort of shut. Not just <laughs> the door shut, you know, it doesn't, the sort of windows are shut, everything. 
and I sort of wander around. I'm looking, and then I see that I see an odd, you know, one or two people about eventually. And so I go up to somebody and say, "Oh, you know, can you tell me where where the offices are?" And I've got had the name of the guy, the manager, and he sort of looked blankly at me and said, uh, "Well, he's not here. He's the, he's the pits on holiday." He, he found. I mean, there was a, an official who was there, one of the sort of under managers who was in charge of what was going on, which was some minor amount of maintenance and that sort of thing. And I explained the situation to him, and he said, "Well, all I can do is take you down. I can take you down and show you the face, but it's not working. <laughs> you know, I can." So I said, "But you know, there was no point in not going." So we went down and looked at the face, which wasn't working, and you know, it's another long, wall cold face. I've seen them anyway. In the July, when I went over, right, I was still with Sheila. There was no nothing nothing in the air whatever the relationship was it was still that and then I came back and then in August Sheila went down to the cottage and when Sheila came back your mother and I got together so that was yeah she was living in the flat upstairs that's the point I was decorating the kitchen and she was we were talking and Sheila was down in Cornwall and by so when we went back when I went back in the October I'd broken up with Sheila in September June and I were only just together so I was very obsessed with my new relationship right. all this time, although I was in America. A second trip, yeah. A second trip. I mean, the first trip, I remember in, in Utah, I was sort of looking around for some big present for Sheila. But by the second time I was there, I was into a very new relationship and quite obsessed. Carmel Kames lived in Scarsdale, which is sort of north of New York and is conservative territory, Republican territory. And his wife always slept with a gun in her in the bedside drawer so i'm then introduced to the crew who's assembled so there's him now he's a very, he's a sort of second generation very reputable cameraman he may have done the odd, odd feature i don't think so but he was very professional he knew about you know he was very technical conservative in his sort of aesthetic as a cameraman but you know all right that's okay now his assistant was about in his 50s. And then there was a production manager who he'd hired. He was in his 70s. In <laughs> his 70s? And he had two fingers missing on one hand. <laughs> okay. And he was kind of totally useless. Carmel Kames had obviously organised everything himself. I mean, I can't believe this guy would have... Done. He was, when I say totally useless, I mean, he just wasn't very... That. And then there was the sound engineer, who again was, was getting on. He was a gun freak in fact he he was he, he was a very strange guy i mean he was a bit worrying a bit he was he actually sort of you know was always producing guns and sort of what like, like shotguns or hang oh guns no handguns and all sorts of things. and then there was the person who i sort of got on best with and the person who i sort of personally got i used to get drinking with was the electrician who wow. was he was in his sixties, okay. so, <laughs> and he was an Irish American, right? So the, and we were sort of buddies. You're a fish out of water, you know. You're <coughs> kind of yeah. Well, well, uh, yeah. I was quite happy. Left wing British mm. Mm. guy yeah. in a sort of hippie-ish um, situation back home, and you're mm. put with these kind of gun-toting old <laughs> yeah. American Republican. Not even young. Not even. I mean, how old were you at the time? Forty-five. Yeah, I was about 45. So I was probably the youngest. 
of them. Where they fell down was that and this is where it would have been better even when a British unit manager was, although they had arranged everything very well and all that, they were, as I've always sort of said, they were New Yorkers. They didn't make films out of coal mines, that sort of thing, because I thought, well, they're Americans, so it's an American situation. But that's like, say, you know, if you take a coal miner from Britain to a coal mine in America, you'd be more at home. Well, so if I'd taken a coal board crew from England, although we would have had the disadvantages of cultural knowledge or that sort of thing, we, w- we would have been more at home down a pit. But, I mean, the first time we went down this American mine, we were in this cage. They were all there with their great big boxes and they weren't looking too happy because they weren't used to going down mines, that sort of thing. So we were going down and I was... I can't remember what happened. I think I'd said to somebody at the top... I must. I mean, I must have been worried about this. I must have sort of said to somebody, well, who, so what's going to happen? And they told us where we were going and that sort of thing. I suppose I was looking for somebody to be waiting for us at the bottom. But when we got there, the cage door opened and everybody just went. They all shut, you know, people working up that way, that way, that way. Yeah, and we were just left there, literally, in a strange mine with this gear and these complaining New Yorkers. And he says, I mean, I can remember from the very beginning, I was constantly saying and thinking, you know, we must have... In the early stages, I was saying, but we must have a, a mining engineer. You know, I, you know, I don't know why. I mean, I suppose I, I suppose I wanted to go to America, or I didn't see. No, well, nobody would agree with me. What did you have to lose? <laughs> well, I know. It wasn't yes. like your reputation hung on this. No, no, no. Um, no. And it's not like you particularly cared about your reputation. No, and also yeah. don't forget this was at that period, of course, but with this, with all the personal things going, I was in a great yeah, sort of state yeah, yeah, of, yeah, yeah. you know, I wasn't thinking, I'd probably have thought very differently or been had made different decisions for, uh, if you had prior, prior or later. Yeah. But, you know, it was all going it's on. 1969. Yeah, the, the, the moonshot. <laughs> You know, divorced, marriage, uh, divorce, finding a place to live. And then the final thing was, of course, we then we flew back to New York. I had a few days. I had I didn't have a full week. I think I had about four or five days or something. So I stayed in a hotel in New York, went up, and Carmel, that's right, they took me to the theatre in his father's house. They had the theater, underground theatre. The film, no, the film, film theatre. And in those days, we're going back to 1969, you know, when you didn't have DVDs and video and digital and all that. And that's right, and he gave me a bottle of whiskey and I sat, sat and watched Around the World in 80 Days, drinking this black and white whiskey with the thought of Carl and... and <laughs> yeah, no, but the thing is, on the plane, I got absolutely pissed flying back. I mean, nowadays you wouldn't be able to do it. No, because how it started is I had the rushes. We had the opportunity of either getting processed over there or bringing it all back. Now, for some reason, it meant we couldn't see what we were shooting, but I can't remember why, but probably because it was 16mm, but it, was, it would have been impossible with 35 So actually... I had the rushes in a huge box like this, packed in a huge cardboard box. How big? Oh, well, big enough that, you know, they had to put it on a trolley to get it on the plane. Right, OK. But, it was, you know, you could lift one... Well, it was... You could lift it, it on your own? I can't remember. You would difficulty you could have, yeah. Okay. You could have. I mean, it's not saying you could carry it under your arm. But then... And it was worth about 20 grand because it was the whole rushes for the thing. Now, that doesn't sound much now, 
But I mean, I suppose it would be worth about a hundred grand or something now. Right. You know, and it was in my responsibility. And I had these rushes, which was the negative of the whole film, and I had it on a seat beside me. You had no other copies? No. The original. And and I think we must have actually booked a seat, two seats, because I had it on the seat beside me. And I don't know, it was a kind of relief relaxation. I was coming back to June. I hadn't seen her. I mean, it was fairly new. Yeah. Relief, whatever it was. But anyway, I got very drunk, drunk. Very drunk. Right. But... Um, on the plane? Yeah. Just on the I mean, when I was... Oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, because my, that was the other thing. Oh, yes. Was I mean, on cold boys, no, well, yeah, no, because when... You know, what happened is, when I, because I was going abroad in this function, I was jacked up into some kind of new, different grade of expenses, temporarily, for this thing. Right. So I was, a total, I was treated like somebody of a much higher management status. So I had virtually unlimited expenses. I mean, when I was drinking with all these, you know, whereas in the past I would have had, you'd have had to have made a case for buying a drink for somebody, you know. I mean, you could just... I, mean, that, I was virtually, yeah. I mean, I virtually did... I, what money I spent was recoupable during that trip, just for that, you know, for that trip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no, money was no problem. So you got really pissed on the I got plane. really pissed on, on the plane, and when I got to this country... and But you wouldn't have done it today. And, I mean, I, when I got to this country, I don't... They'd sent Charlie Hasdo, who was a cameraman, to meet me with a car, and I rushed through the customs. I don't know how I got through customs, but I got through everything. It was sort of with somebody pushing this thing beside me, got through, and I was waiting for a taxi, and then Charlie Hasdo came up to me and said, didn't you see me? And I sort of said, no, apparently not. So he then took the rushes, and I wouldn't... I. He was going to take the rushes back to the coal board, that's right, and it was, it was probably evening or something. Anyway, so I sort of said, well, I'm, I'm going home. So I went off. So I went on the underground and <laughs> got went back to Ballam. I mean, I was quite glad to be back. I wanted to get back because, I mean, yeah, because, I mean, my getting drunk on the plane was a kind of a great celebration yeah, and relief and, yeah, oh, fuck it, here I am. Yeah, I mean, I can't, you know, I, I feel, sort of feel a bit guilty. I should say, well, you know, I got this sudden chance to go to America and, of course, I was wildly excited. No, no, that. But looking best. back on it, I mean, I wasn't really. The whole thing was always fraught with, with you know, first of all with the kind of the what's it all about, you know, the, the sense that this is another sort of absurd exercise in human sort of... Self deceit, self deception, and then subsequently, then the, the personal, you know, that I was also got an awful lot going on personally, and I, you know, what was I really concerned about in life? And all that. But I mean, I like, and there were things about it. I mean, I would, I, I'm glad I went to New York. I'm glad, I'm glad I went. I'm glad that, you know, that, I, that America hasn't just remained an imagined place. <laughs>
This is the last episode of season one of Down to a Sunless Sea, Memories of My Dad. You can hear Down to a Sunless Sea on the Getting Better Acquainted podcast feed or on its own dedicated feed. Both should be available anywhere that you get your podcasts. You can find Down to a Sunless Sea, Memories of My Dad on Facebook. It's on Twitter at SunlessPod. You can email the show at downtoasunlesspod at gmail.com. The episodes and the show notes are all collected together at downtoasunlesspod.com. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at goosefat101. Down to a Sunless Sea, Memories of My Dad has been a personal project produced by Getting Better Acquainted and me. I've done all of the editing and the presenting, written the music and done the majority of the admin and promotion work. But nothing in this world is ever done in complete isolation and this show would never have happened if it hadn't have been for the support and help of other people. First and foremost in all of that is Martin Zoltz Ostwick, who has been my Pulse Award mentor and has given me constant advice, both in terms of how to improve the sound quality, although any flaws in the sound are nothing to do with him, they're all to do with me. Advice on the creative content and essential fact-checking and oversight on the science and maths involved in the show. He even did a touch of music production and a recording of Brighton Beach. So when you hear someone literally walking down to the sea, that person is Martin. Additionally to all of that, he read a lot of very long emails from me with amazing patience and provided me with feedback and support, which are the things that keep you going when you're working on a project like this. The other person who's been essential in terms of giving me support and feedback and helping me to keep going with this project is my partner, Jen Adamthwaite. She's done more than just that, though. She edited all of the original medium pieces, so she's given some editorial guidance to the words in this show. She listened to all of the initial edits of the show and was my first listener, and she's even taken on some of the admin and written and sent out press releases for me although in terms of that part of the work she was at least paid and the last person in the trilogy of important people to thank is my brother tony pickering who designed the artwork for the show for more art by tony go to pick-art.co.uk There is nobody else who I would have wanted to draw our father. And additionally to doing that, he's been an amazing champion of the show. In terms of the other people that I'd like to thank and credit, we have Linda Shipley, who facilitated the FaceTime conversation that I had with my dad in the care home where he is. And unrelated to the project, I'd like to thank her, all of the staff in that home and care workers in general, really, at this moment for doing such amazing jobs with so little support. People with dementia everywhere have better lives 
for the love that you're giving them. Thank you to Penny Bell, who, as well as being a guest, also allowed me to record her dogs, use clips from her podcast, and arranged for her mum to record the piano parts used in some of the early episodes. Thank you to Rosie Hoy, my sister, and Brianna Petgrave, my niece, who was such a big part of taking my dad back to his childhood home. Thank you to Spark True Stories, who allowed me to use a couple of different stories that were recorded at Spark events in London. Thank you to everybody that was a part of the band Apples for Everyone, which me and my dad were both members of. Apart from the theme music, all of the songs that you've heard in this show were either Apples for Everyone songs or were songs which featured Apples for Everyone members very heavily. Technically, I wrote the original versions, at least, of nearly all of them. But one of them was written by Jack Gobsmob, as well as Jack's deliciously pirate tones. You have also heard vocals from Miriam Steiger and Hayley Gullen. The music has either been produced by me, or by Stephen Harvey, or by George Brufton. The music from The Family Tree was created by George Lekovich. Earlier on in this episode, and in some of the other episodes before this, I've used a piece of music by Alexander Cameron. That music was written for a radio play that I wrote when I was at university called Station to Station. Additional editorial thanks to everybody in my writing group who critiqued all of the written pieces that would go on to be the narrations in this show. They provided really useful perspectives and feedback that really helped the writing to become better. And of course, a big thanks to the Wellcome Trust and the British Podcast Awards for funding the science-focused episodes of this series. And do go and listen to those other Pulse Award winners. There's such an amazing variety in the range of shows that were funded and all of them are really, really important and really deserve your time. And a big thanks to all of the guests that I've had as part of my welcome-funded episodes. They have given this show so many new dimensions and expanded my mind in all kinds of ways. I'm so glad that they all agreed to share their thoughts and their work with me. I think that covers everybody that should be thanked. But if you're somebody who hasn't been thanked and you should have been, thank you. And the final thanks needs to go to somebody who can't really hear it anymore. Or at least can't process it and remember it. Thank you so much for so many reasons and in so many ways to my father, Peter Pickering, who has been the main subject of this series, is my oldest and dearest friend and has been one of my favourite people to collaborate with. I guess this is the last time I'm going to be recording you for the show or for anything. So is there anything? Yeah, yes. The ultimate recording. 
How would you like to end the ultimate recording, the last recording? What would you like to say? What can I say? What can I say? That I don't know. That I am still alive. In one form or another. And until death takes place, ultimate, absolute death, you cannot know whether there is anything beyond it. And the last thing I ask people to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Well, goodbye, audience. It's been great talking for you.